Father, thanks for giving us the uh, night to be together again. We're grateful for what you have to teach us, and we're thankful uh, that we can just continue to dig into the ways you have uh, loved us and helped us and saved us. So just pray for your help now that that we can uh, work through this material and, and have clarity and understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so we're going to continue... Um, Working through Romans 8, 8, 29, and 30, uh, which is what we did last week. We talked through this kind of chain or uh, order of salvation. And here's what this verse says again, just to remind everybody. Uh, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So uh, last week we talked about soteriology, which is the fancy technical term for the doctrine of salvation. Uh, We worked through primarily predestined, called, and justified. And I know we had a few other things in in there too. Um, But we left off with this last word, glorified. Uh, we we held off on that because this relates more to um, the subject we need to discuss tonight, which is the doctrine of sanctification. Um, so after justification in this verse, Paul mentions glorification, which is the end result uh, and ultimately the chief purpose of Christ's work for us. So uh, what we're going to talk about are really key issues that are related to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in in Christ in our lives as Christians leading up to glorification. And so there's a number of things that Paul doesn't address in that string of of things that he says in those two verses, um, but he does talk a great deal about in the New Testament in his other letters, as we'll see. Um, And some of these are uh, concepts like adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and then glorification. And so, so if you're talking through kind of the order of salvation, we're picking up at the end of where we, where we left off last week, which is justification. What comes next, right? What comes after we are made right with God? What happens after we are um, brought into this right relationship with him through faith? And that's really what we're going to work through today is what is the ongoing Christian life look like and how do we continue to grow? So we're going to work, work our way through these uh, four things, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and then we'll talk about glorification. So I'm calling all of these things um, the doctrine of sanctification, which I'll define in a, in a little bit here. We'll get there. It's kind of a word that's not real common. Um, but, but sanctification will be its own separate s- subject within this too. So uh, yeah, let's just jump right in. We're going to get into adoption first. Um, so here's um, one of the uh, primary passages on this issue. It's Romans 8. Uh, so several verses before that chain of, of uh, salvation that Paul gives us, Paul says this. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness 
with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there we're seeing this concept of adoption. And he specifically says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, sons and daughters. It's kind of a generic term for a child of God, right? And so he calls us children. He calls us heirs. And so we want to talk through these things. But fundamentally, adoption, the definition of this theologically is Uh, It's the act of God where he makes us members of his family. That's really simply what it is. Uh, It's the act of God where he makes us members of his family. And there's a number of passages that talk about adoption or the the same concept, even if they don't use that that exact phrase. Um, We can go to Ephesians 1, uh, 5 and 6. There Paul talks about this as well. It says there that uh, in love, this is the very tail end of verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption. So we were brought into this thing called the Christian life for the purpose of adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, So there we have that reality that we are uh, predestined for adoption, that God has called us. Uh, he chose us before the foundation of the world and he called us to himself and he brought us to faith for the purpose of adopting us. Uh, Galatians chapter uh, 3, 23 to 26 and uh, Galatians 4, 4 to 7. He, here's what he says. Um, says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So there's that concept of being a son or a child of God through faith. Um, so, so he mentions it there, and then he, it, he goes further in chapter 4, in just the next chapter, uh, 4 to 7, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, so there you're getting that same, very similar concept to what he writes in Romans with um, this idea of being able to cry out to God. That word Abba, um, I know it, it's a band too, but before it was a band, it, it was, uh, it's this Greek word that is kind of an, it's hard to define, which is why they don't translate it into English. Uh, they just leave it in, in the Greek. But it's basically a, a personal a word for, for father. So it's, uh, there's not a perfect like one-to-one analogy because there's still a great deal of respect in it. It's not like super impersonal, uh, or excuse me, super like formal, but there's still 
the respect that's due to a father. So they don't really try to translate it, um, but it's it's just the way to express that personal relationship with with our father. And so he says, uh, we were redeemed in verse five so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So there's that concept there. And then uh, you can go to John 1, 12. This is, a, uh, this is a place where Jesus is being discussed in the beginning of John. He's, they're talking about his entrance into the world. And it says, but all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. So by believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, we've been given the right to become his children. So there's, even though the word adoption is not used there, the concept of being brought into God's family is. And then finally, 1 John, way at the back of, the, of your Bible there, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know it when he appears. We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So there again, you're seeing the idea of being children of God. Um, God adopts us. He brings us into his family. So adoption follows justification. Um, And we're justified, we're made righteous before God, apart from any works we do, purely on the basis of our faith and trust in Jesus. And what that does is it changes the relationship between us and God. Uh, And and fundamentally changes it. And Paul actually addresses this pretty specifically in Romans 5, 10 and 11. Uh, He shows us the stark difference in relationship now that we're in Christ. He says, for while we were enemies, and I'm italicizing these words, um, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there's this dynamic change through justification, right at the beginning of Romans 5, he talks about our justification. He, he says, um, uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, whom, uh, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that's how he begins chapter five. And then as he works his way down just a few more verses, this is what he he unpacks, is that we were outside of Christ, we were enemies, but now we're reconciled. We're brought into this right relationship again with God through Christ, through the death of Jesus. So that's, um, the the word adoption is not in Romans five. Uh, You can see that, but the concept of being made right with God and having that relationship change is clearly there. Okay, so let's unpack some of the practical aspects of adoption. Um, What are the privileges of adoption into God's family? 
what does the Bible primarily teach us about this, this relationship? Well, it teaches us that we are heirs of God. We're heirs. That's the refrain that continually comes out and as Paul talks about this, this concept of adoption. He says it in Romans 8. He actually emphasizes it a ton there. Um, it says, let me find it, yeah. Um, he says in verse 17, if we're children of God, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So he's using that word heir uh, a lot uh, in that, just several times to emphasize the point. He talks about this as well in Ephesians 1, in that same passage that we looked at earlier um, on, on adoption. He talks about how we are heirs. If you continue <clears throat> um, reading through here, it says, yeah, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, uh, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Uh, and then he goes on to say, let me, in verse 11, he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So somebody who has been given an inheritance is an heir. That's by definition what it means to be an heir. You, are, you have an inheritance coming to you. And so there Paul brings that out as well. So we are heirs. We are inheriting something from, from God because of this adoption. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a co-heir with Jesus? Well, this is a really wonderful thing. It means that everything Jesus has will be ours one day. He, we're sharing whatever Jesus has will be ours, which, uh, in case you don't know this, is everything. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> like Everything belongs to Jesus. Now, this is why Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount that, that the meek will inherit the earth, the, the humble, those who have come to Jesus through uh, humble faith will inherit the earth. Um, the, the intention there is obviously one day we will have it all. We don't have it all given to us right here and now in a in a tangible sense, um, but we have been given spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing even now, but one day we will actually be the beneficiaries, the heirs of, of all that God has. So that's adoption. Um, if you, I, I'm going to give you a book recommendation for each of these this week, and th this one uh, for adoption, if you want to dig deeper into this, uh, there's a great book by uh, Trevor Burke. Uh, he was one of my professors actually at at a Moody Bible Institute. Uh, he's not there anymore. He's teaching somewhere else now, I think. But he wrote uh, Adopted into God's Family, uh, which is exploring a Pauline metaphor. But just a really great book if you guys are readers and you want to dig in more. It's worth uh, looking at. He does a much deeper dive into this than what we just did. But um, I think we, we uh, got to the heart of it. So any questions on adoption? Anything that we can clarify or talk through? This one may be the, the, the more, um, of all the things we're going to talk about, might, might be the simplest to wrap our heads around. So uh, if you don't have any questions, we'll keep going. All right, let's talk about sanctification. So that's, we're kind of doing this big, broad definition of sanctification, and in, including all of this adoption and, and uh 
glorification and all that. But sanctification itself is a, is a fascinating and important subject that we need to dig into. So if you're not familiar with the word, which probably many of us are not, it's not a common word we use. Um, sanctification means the progressive, gradual work of God throughout the lives of believers, believers in Jesus, which make us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So the word sanctify or um, that word sanct uh, comes from, I believe it's the Latin for uh, to, be, to be made holy, to be made holy. So uh, that's why we, in English, we call it sanctification. It's kind of rooted from the, I think it's the Latin. Uh, but in Greek, uh, it comes, uh, the, the word that gets translated sanctification or sanctified is the Greek word that means holy or set apart or made new, made different. Um, and so when we talk about sanctification, we have to distinguish this from justification. So justification is a once uh, and, and official moment in time where we trust in Jesus and God, in that, through that faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous. That's done if you're a believer in Christ. There's no changing that. Uh, you have been made righteous. But the process of actually tangibly being righteous or being holy or being like Jesus is a gradual work of God in our lives. It takes time. In fact, it takes the whole life of a Christian to get there. And you don't have to start that process when you're very young. Uh, you can start that process at any moment when you become a Christian. And, and so that, that's a good thing. Um, there, there's no, there's no like, defined amount of time that this takes. It just takes the time it takes until you meet Jesus face to face. Um, and that's when the process will be done. But we're working through this gradually in our lives. So one passage that highlights that is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. At the early start of this letter, the Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this, that he, meaning God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So when we trust in Jesus, God begins a good work in us that he will be faithful to complete at the day of Christ Jesus, which is the day that uh, we, we see him face to face, that, we're, that we meet him either through death or through his return. And, um, and so sanctification is this progressive, gradual work that God does in our lives. Uh, as I said, sanctification begins when we are saved, when we're justified, um, because, have, because as we talked about last week, we talked about regeneration, right? Being given these new hearts in Christ, we begin to grow towards Christ-likeness. And that happens through hating what is sinful in us and loving him. That's not an overnight thing. We don't just magically go, okay, now I suddenly am perfectly in love with Jesus. And I now just suddenly... Uh, hate all the wrong things in my life. No, this, this is something that happens to us slowly over time, as I said. But it's still a process that we do need to participate in and, and be active in. So let me give you some passages on this. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is, is a good place to start, I think. Um, 
So um, the context of 1 Corinthians 6 is about uh, lawsuits between believers. Um, and so basically he's, he's got all these problems in the church in Corinth. There's relational problems galore. And, and basically the Christians are just kind of at each other, fighting each other, taking each other to court, all those things. And he's just asking, like, why are you guys doing this? Um, but here's, here's how he, where he goes from there. In verse 9 he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, and we got to understand that this is not a, a moral thing as much as a relationship with Jesus thing, right? To be righteous is to be justified. To be unrighteous is to be not justified. So the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning if you're not in right relationship with Jesus, if you don't have the justifying work of Christ in your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it, it's very easy if we stop there to go, okay, so a whole bunch of us are, are out now, right? If, we, if you just, I mean, you may not have committed all of these sins, but you've probably committed some of these sins. We all have to some degree. Um, you know, if you think about the, the less scandalous ones, like who, who hasn't been greedy, right? I mean, who, that's a pretty, it's a pretty easy one to go, okay, yeah, we, we're guilty of, of these but that's not where Paul goes. Paul says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Past tense. Some of you were that way. But you were washed, which is regeneration. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, Let's understand what the Bible's saying here. It's not saying that if you've committed a sin on this list that you're, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, is if you make a practice of living in these things in an unrepentant, unchanged way to say, I'm just going to live however I want. Well, that's an indication that you're not actually justified, right? Like you're, you're not in a position of being justified if you are just completely content to go on sinning uh, indefinitely. We'll, we'll get into the nuance of this in a, in a little bit, but we're seeing clearly that there is a distinction between those who are unrighteous and those who are righteous or justified in Christ. And the, the key is that when we are washed, we're justified and we're sanctified uh, through Jesus. So there's that. Now, Romans chapter 6 of verse 18, uh, 14 and then 18 Here's what he, he's basically going to give us this, this change in our demeanor towards sin. He says, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. That's verse 18. Go, sorry, go back up to verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So when God gets a hold of our hearts, there's a change in us that, basically frees us to truly be the people that God 
intends for us to be. And we won't be it, be that perfectly all at once, but in this process he takes us through, uh, we will we'll get there clo- more and more. Uh, and then finally, 1 John 3, 9, um, he says, This, um, no one who is born of God, so regenerated, changed, brought, and all those things we talked about last week, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So again, he's not saying that Christians don't struggle with sin. We do. But what he's saying is, is that we don't live in sin. We don't, that's not where we make our home anymore. If we're in Christ, we don't make the practice of it. Now, again, we can re- misread this and go, well, does that mean if I sin like more than one time, I'm, it's evidence I'm not a Christian? Well, no. Again, it's a, it's a process. But this process happens over time and we... We, we need to recognize that making a practice of sinning is basically sitting in the filth and being content with, with that. And that's where Christians can't live. Um, Christians need to eventually uh, turn their eyes to Jesus and get out of sin. So sanctification increases throughout the life of a believer. I want to emphasize this. There may be setbacks. There may be slowdowns. Um, but over the course of time, we will reach the final destination of being glorified. So I don't have a graph on the screen here, but if you just envision a graph, you know, the time graph that is going to go up the more time that goes, but it's not going to be a straight line up. It's going to be a jagged kind of up and down line that Christians are going to have. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to have periods where you grow a ton. You may have some times where you're back in rebellion but then you come out of that and you're, you're, but you're over the course of time, you're making your way up, even if it's not just a direct straight line. So a few passages to, to talk about here. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 16 to 18. Uh, <clears throat> oops. Here's uh, what he says. So he says, but okay, now in, in the context here, he's, he's using this... Uh, discussion about Moses after Moses was on Mount Sinai he'd come down to the people and he'd wear a veil because his face was shining he was close to God and so his he would come back with this shining face and it freaked everybody out so he'd start wearing a veil so that's kind of the context here uh, he says but when, when when one turns to the Lord the veil is removed now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and we all with unveiled face beholding, and, and uh, we are with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image, here's the key, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that one degree of glory to another is, is describing that, that slow and steady, gradual process of being glorified or becoming fully like Jesus as as we will be one day. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 14. Um, there's what it says. So here's the Apostle Paul speaking of himself. He says, not that, not that I have already obtained this, this being you know, the perfect righteousness in, in this life, 
or am already perfect. He said, I haven't gotten there. That's the Apostle Paul, so give yourself a little slack here, okay? But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Um, uh, Let me keep reading. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he, he says simply, he's, he's a work in progress. He's continuing on. He's going he's gonna to let those failures sit behind him. He's going to keep moving forward, but he's going to press on. It's going to be a gradual process. And then one more we'll look at on this one. Uh, it's Colossians 3, verse 10. Uh, he says, put off, or excuse me, uh, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're, oftentimes Paul uses this analogy of putting off what's old, putting on what's new. And he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed. Well, being renewed means it's not completely renewed. It's, it's being renewed. It's a gradual thing. So those are just a few examples of that. There, there may be setbacks um, in your life, but over the course of time, over the duration of your life as a Christian, you will reach the goal. Um, lastly on this, before I give you the book recommendation on, on this subject, um, the motivation for our growth in Christ or our sanctification has to be the gospel work of Jesus. Um, as we grow in God's grace, we grow in our desire to be like Jesus. So I, I want to emphasize this because it's, it's so much at the heart of what we're about here. Um, this gospel centrality is such a big part of what we, what we want you guys to, to sit in and, and, and work through. And when we talk about sanctification, it's really easy for us to get moralistic, meaning um, it's just about you know, trying more, doing better, uh, just being better than the person you know, behind you or in front of you or whatever it is. And, and, and that's not really the picture of sanctification that we're given in the scriptures. We talk about it this way at Springbrook. We say the gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. And the gospel culture that we talk about is that actual tangible living out of, of what Jesus has done for us. But that only comes through understanding what Jesus has done for us. So if we, are, if we grow in our love for the gospel, grow in our love for God's grace, we will also grow in our desire to be more like him. And one of the great passages to highlight this is Ephesians chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And I just want to, it's a little lengthy, but I think it's really worth looking at it because Paul makes some really profound points here. So here's what he says in in verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now the Gentiles means those who are in this context, those who don't know Christ. Uh, In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, 
because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in, in this passage, it's kind of lengthy, I know, but he, he's basically unpacking the distinction between those outside of Christ and those Within, within Christ and redeemed by Christ. And he's just showing us the different ways in which we operate. Uh, that's how he begins. And, and then he gives us a long list of things, right? In verse 25 through uh, basically verse 32, he's giving us all these things that we need to either do or not do. And again, we can treat this like it's a checklist of going, okay, check, not doing that, not going to do that. And take this moralistically, except if we actually read where he goes in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Because this is where I'm, I'm trying to get us to, is these things, the sanctification thing, flows out of our identity in Christ. That's where it comes from. It comes from his grace. Look at what it says. Therefore, so after he says all of this, he's, he's tying it all up, and he says, therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, right? So we are to be imitators of God because who we are is fundamentally changed. We're, we're not hostile enemies of God anymore. We're loved children of God. And then he says, walk in love, which is, I think, the general operating principle of all of the Christian life, to walk in love. And here's why. Because Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So gospel doctrine is Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Gospel culture is we walk in love. That's, that's how this is meant to, to flow, right? So we are, we are walking in love. We are imitating God. We are being sanctified in these things not because it's some moralistic checklist we have to accomplish, but because God has fundamentally changed us. 
He has given us a new life and a new heart. And, and so that, that leads to a different way of living for us. So that's, um, that's just one example. We could go to many, many others in the New Testament where the same concept is, is unpacked in just different, different ways. Uh, the letter of 1 John is a great letter to read if you want to dig into what this fleshes out and looks like. But if you want to go deeper on, a, on another book, something on sanctification, here it is. It's called How People Change um, it's by Timothy Lane and uh, Paul Tripp. Uh, they co-wrote this together. It's a tremendous book of, of how to understand sanctification um, and, and ultimately then how we can also help people uh, in, their, in their walk with Christ. So if you're interested in another book to read, uh, How People Change is a really good one on this. Okay, any questions on sanctification? I'm going to go back to justification. Yeah, sure. And maybe part of sanctification, where does baptism come in? Yeah, so baptism, um, that, that's, that's going to be different depending on who you ask. But if you're asking me, which you are, so, <laughs> um, our view of baptism is that baptism is an outward sign of what God has done inwardly in us. So we don't practice infant baptism because we believe that faith and repentance is the work that God does in us, and that's what leads us to then outwardly express that through baptism. So we do the whole dunking thing because it, it signifies being identified with Jesus in his burial and his resurrection, well, death, burial, resurrection, right? Um, and so that's our practice. Now, I know, you know, obviously different denominations practice it differently, and they have different reasons and good reasons in some sense. Uh, depends on who you're, who you're talking to and, you know, which denomination, but... Um, I understand the infant baptism arguments. I'm just not compelled by them in the, in the scriptures. Um, so what we're seeing is, uh, and I think you see that modeled in the book of Acts. You, you don't have any examples of people bringing their children to be baptized. What you have are people coming to Christ and then being baptized. Uh, you have the apostle uh, Peter in, at the Sermon of Pentecost being asked, okay, what do we do? And he says, well, repent and be baptized. So baptism is a sign of repentance, but it doesn't actually make us Christians. Faith makes us Christians. Believing in Jesus makes us Christians. But baptism is, a, is an outward declaration, more or less, that we, we're crossing that line and we're saying we're, we're on team Jesus now and we're going to do this publicly. So where does that put you for justification? Like, is, is that like before after? Like, where, where do people find themselves getting baptized? Yeah, so baptism would fall after justification. Um, it would be somewhere in this process of sanctification, somewhere okay. in there. And I think everybody's got a little bit of a different uh, experience with that, and some people are going to be baptized the, the minute that they cross that line, and they're going to do that out of enthusiasm. Others will hang back and go, hmm, let me figure this out and think about this. So I don't, I don't think there's a hard like, line where it has to be. But it's somewhere in between, um, yeah, justification and glorification. There should be baptism somewhere in there, hopefully. Okay. So, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of, you yeah. know, because yeah. you, you have this, and it's like, where does that fall in between? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Great question. Anything else on this one? All right, here we go. This one's going to be fun. I love this one. Let's talk about perseverance of the saints. Um, perseverance of the saints means 
that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And only those who persevere until the end uh, have truly been born again. So this is a doctrine that sometimes we refer to it as uh, eternal security. Sometimes people say uh, kind of colloquially, once saved, always saved. Uh, Sometimes people uh, call it the assurance of salvation. Um, But I think that the the technical term that I, I prefer to use is perseverance and specifically perseverance of the saints. Now, saints, let's define that because the Bible uses the word saints, not in terms of super Christians, like we tend to think of saints um, as these old, you know, dead people who did great things. Um, they may or may not have been saints, but saints, biblically speaking, is, is simply a Christian. Uh, Paul calls uh, the, the people in Corinth saints. That's how he refers to them, which is crazy when you read the letter to the Corinthians because they are not acting like saints at all. Uh, but Paul calls them that because they're Christians. Uh, even though they're, they're messy Christians, like all of us, they, they're Christians and so they're saints. And he actually calls uh, a lot of the people in his, in his circle saints. So just in Ephesians, since I happen to be turned to that, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So when we say saints, we're talking about specifically uh, Christians. And so to talk about perseverance of the saints means that those who are truly born again, truly Christians, have had that regenerated heart, are justified in Christ, they will be kept by God's power, not by our own power, but by God's power, and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. But here's the key. Only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. So I know that might be like saying the same thing twice, but it's, a, it's an important emphasis that we're trying to make here. Um, so let's talk through these passages because there's a, quite a few. Um, and this is just a sampling. I think, I know there are Christians who would disagree with this, right? There, there are Christians who believe we can lose our salvation. And um, you know what? I, I think they're wrong, but they're Christians and not, not going to say they're not by any means. We can disagree on some of these things, uh, but I think it's pretty clear from the scripture uh, as when you take the scriptures as a whole that this is the biblical teaching. So uh, John chapter 6 um, and, and then John chapter 10 are two of the probably best examples out of the mouth of Christ himself on this. Um, so 638 to 40, here's what it says. Um, So Jesus says here, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, that I, Jesus, should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So, so there you're seeing Jesus clearly state that he came to earth to do what God wanted, 
And what God wanted him to do was to lose nothing of what God had given him. And in this context, that is the people that God has given to him. That's, that's, if you read all of John 6, that's pretty much what he's dealing with, is the people who are coming to him in true belief. And then he says this, that if anyone uh, who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I, Jesus says, will raise him up on the last day. It's not, he doesn't qualify this with, I might raise him up on the last day if that person happens to you know, meet this, that, or the other thing. The key is if he believes he has eternal life, it's his, it's hers, and, they, and we will be raised up. We will be. It's a, it's a promise that we will be. So there's on the last day. So that's when we'll get into to that in a little bit tonight too. But then look over at John chapter 10. This is the passage where Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. And uh, in the, let's see, verse 27, uh, 27 to 30, it says, my sheep, so he's using the analogy of being a shepherd and we're the sheep in this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So, so there Jesus clearly says that his sheep know his voice and follow him and he knows them. And then he clearly says that they have eternal life and then he says that no one will be able to snatch them out of Jesus's hands or the Father's hand. So basically the picture here is he's, he's got us and no one's taken us. We're, we're, we're safe in his arms. We're safe in him. Um, you can also look at Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. That's a passage where um, we're told that we, are, we have this inheritance, but that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that the, that the Holy Spirit is actually our, our guarantee of our inheritance. Well, if the Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee or the seal of our inheritance, uh, that's, that's a pretty solid seal, right? It's not, it's not really going anywhere. Um, it's, it's secure in, in God himself holding us in who he is. And then I, I love this one, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. This one's super clear too. Um, so let me get there. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. So we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, so what the Apostle Peter is saying here is pretty, I think, pretty clear. He says that we have been given in this inheritance. We've been born again 
for the purpose of an inheritance, which, which definitely connects with what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians and Romans 8 and all that. Um, but this inheritance is, notice the words he uses, imperishable. So it, it, can't, it can't rot away. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It'll never be dirtied up. It's unfading. It'll, it'll stay there and then kept in heaven for you. It's kept. Uh, and so that is, and then the, the apostle Peter makes it clear here that it's not just this generic inheritance. It is actually you. He, he says, you are by God's power being guarded through faith because that inheritance is received by faith, right? We're, we're trusting Jesus. And so that faith is what gives us the inheritance um, and that trust. So, so it's, it's imperishable. It is, uh, it is kept. It's unfading. It's undefiled. All these things. So when we talk about perseverance of the saints, we're talking about finishing out the Christian life still as Christians. Uh, let's talk through this, though. Um, only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. So there, there is no condition by which we have to um, be saved, right? We are saved by faith, by grace through faith. Um, but there are passages that indicate that we, we got to stick with Jesus too, right? So, so there's a couple passages that talk about how, well, there's more than a couple, but uh, we're going to look at just a couple that talk about how those who actually do finish the race are the ones that truly have been born again. Uh, so John 8, 31 to 32 uh, talks about this. And then Colossians 1, 22 and 23. Um, so verse, uh, yeah, John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, so you hear what Jesus is saying. He says, if you abide or stay or remain, that word abide can stay, be remain. If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Basically, Jesus is simply saying that if we are remaining in him, in his word, it's evidence that we are truly his disciples. If we don't, it's evidence that we were not his disciples. And we haven't stuck with him. Colossians 1, um, 22 and 23 says the same, or some, something similar, I should say here. Um, let me get there. There we go. Um, so I'll actually start in verse 21 just because that's the start of a sentence. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile, in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of fle- in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse twenty three: If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So, so I, don't, I don't think that these, um, you know, this is yours if you do this 
statement con- conflicts at all with salvation by grace. It just simply means that if we have truly been saved by grace, there's, there's an active faith that, could, that is in us and continues in us. And if, there, if that faith isn't there, it's not present or it's removed from us, then that is an indication that we weren't ever truly born again to begin with. So those who persevere to the end are actually born again. They, they are the ones who will get to the end. But let me, let me ask this question, because this is a question I've gotten a lot in my, in my life, in my ministry. It's this, what about people who say they were Christians, but now aren't anymore? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with, with people who have said, well, my brother or my, my friend or my parents or whatever have, they, they said they were Christians at one time, they went to church a lot, they did this stuff, but now, they're, now they say they're not a Christian anymore. What, what do we do with this? I think there's actually um, a couple of possibilities on what's going on there. And I think both of them can be seen in the, in the passage of Luke 15. Um, so in Luke 15, it's the story of the prodigal son. Well, that's how we refer to it. And it shouldn't be the prodigal son. It should be the parable of two sons because that's how Jesus starts the parable. There was a man who had two sons. We always emphasize the prodigal son, but there's actually two sons and they both play a vital role in understanding this. So Jesus basically gives us two possibilities for somebody who says that they were a Christian, but now they're not, or they deconverted, or deconstruction is the big thing right now that people are talking about. We're deconstructing our faith and all this stuff. And it's, um, but here's, here's the basic two possibilities. One is that they are believers who are in a season of rebellion and will one day come back to Christ. That's one possibility. In fact, that's the whole point of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son was a son. He was in the house. He was under his father. And then he abandoned the family, ran off to a foreign country, squandered his inheritance, found himself in a pig pen at the end of the, at the, end of the story here. He's, he's wallowing in this pig pen. He's, he's starving because all of his money's been wasted. And he comes to his senses and he realizes, I need to go back to my father. And I need to come home. And he does. And his father welcomes him, embraces him, throws him a party, actually, to celebrate that he is back at home. And the reality is, is that true believers can uh, go through a season of rebellion. They, they may seem like a lost cause. Uh, I know a guy here. I don't think he'd mind. I'm not going to say his name. I don't think he'd mind me saying this. Guy here rebelled from Jesus for 20 years, is now back in Christ and is, is, is there. Was he, was he not saved through that, all that whole process? Well, that's beyond my pay grade. I, I don't know, right? That, it really is. Like, but what I know is that he had professed faith. He wandered for a couple decades, and now he's back and praise God. What, what does that mean for when did he become a Christian? I, I don't know, but... But that is uh, definitely a possibility. And I always tell people, especially people who, are, who have either their children or a loved one who's not walking with Jesus, though they said they did at one time, I always tell them, it ain't over till it's over. Don't give up hope. This, this you don't know what God may do to turn this around. Keep, keep praying, keep trusting, keep believing that the Lord will do something here. But there is a second alternative 
And the, the other alternative is that there, there are some people who give external signs of conversion, but they were never truly saved. And that's the point of the older son, which is a representation of the Pharisees, actually, in the parable. Jesus is telling the parable to the Pharisees uh, to basically tell them that they're not Christians and they need to, they need to come to Jesus. Um, but the older son is the part of the story that we tend to just neglect as we talk about this. Um, the older son comes in at the very tail end of the parable. The, the party's ongoing. He comes in from the field. He'd, he'd been working on the farm. He doesn't go into the house. He asks the servant what's going on. The servant says, oh, your brother's come home. And he sulks outside the house until the dad comes out and talks to his son and says, hey, come on in. Like, you're welcome to this thing. And he says to his father, basically throws himself a pity party, and he says, well, listen, I, I didn't leave. I've been working like a dog for you all these years. I, I've done all of my, my, my work, and you didn't give me a party. What's happening here? And so I think Jesus is using that as an analogy of helping us understand that there are people who do outwardly look like they're Christians, but somewhere inwardly, and again, that's beyond our pay grade to figure out who's who, right? We, that's up to God to deal with that. But there is a category of people who have experienced this, like, oh, they look like they're walking with Jesus, but they actually don't have a heart for him. And then eventually that may come to fruition and, and show itself to be the case. This is what Paul, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, maybe it was Paul, who knows? We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but... Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 basically talks about this concept uh, in verse 4 to 8. And Hebrews 6 is one that some interpret as a passage that teaches we can lose our salvation. I, I don't understand it in that term. I, I think it's actually telling us the opposite. I, I think it's telling us that there is a category of people who appear to have um, this this vibrant Christian faith, but at the end of the day, it comes to be nothing. And so, and I think that may, is made clear by the end of the passage, but look, look at this. He says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. I highlighted that or I italicized that because that is not saying saved. That is saying that they had some understanding of the gospel. They had some, whether it's intellectual or something, they had some kind of knowledge that, that at some point seemed to make sense to them. They had once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Uh, so all of these tasted, shared, tasted is repeated again. Um, those are not in, inherently telling us that these people had genuine faith. It's saying that, he, that they were there. They were at church. They, they were they were around and they were experiencing these things. Those are experiential words. So that's why I'm not, I'm not convinced that we interpret this through the lens of an actually truly saved person. But let's keep reading. So it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible then to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. 
to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now he's going to pivot into an analogy of a farm. It says, for land that has drunk the rain and often, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, uh, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, that's an analogy of agriculture. And what he's, he's, the writer of Hebrews is trying to make this uh, analogy help us understand what's happening in the, in the person's life that he's describing. Basically, he's saying the person who has in, once been enlightened, has tasted these things, have shared in these things, are kind of like a field that receives all the blessing of the rain, but all that comes up is weeds. What good is that? Right? So there's no true fruit or righteousness that's growing in them because there's actually no, no, no actual faith in them. We can pair this to the, uh, to the parable of the sower and the seeds that Jesus talks about. And there he's talking about how the seed is the word of God and it's being spread, it's being uh, shared, and some of the seeds land on various types of soils. Right, And the soils uh, either are too hard to have the seed penetrate and grow. Some have thorns, and so it chokes out what, what would be there. And some get scorched by the, the rain or the sun and, and dry out. And, and some land on good soil. And the purpose of that parable is that Jesus is talking about how there are, there are different people who will respond to the word of God um, in very different ways. And so I think that this, this is what's basically being said is there, there are people who have all of the same benefits of Christians, this, this analogy of the rain that falls, but what is produced in someone who's not truly a Christian is not fruit or, or a harvest. It's thorns and thistles. And a field that is only producing weeds is, is going to be burned so that it can be you know, dealt with and, and ultimately, hopefully, cared for uh, and, and made into something that can receive crops. But, here, here's the, but I think the point here, we got to be careful not to read too much into the analogies, uh, but I think that the point here is that the writer of Hebrews is saying there are people who can experience the gospel and may be, seem to be receptive to it, but we can't always tell what's going on under the hood, right? It's, there's something deeper going on that only truly that person and the Lord knows. And we, we have to be careful not to be overly, um, you know, just like, oh, we're going to make these judgment calls. Like, we, that's not our place. But the point of the perseverance of the saints is that if you are truly born again, if you truly do have faith in Jesus, you will make it to the end. It's good news. There, there may be people who appear to have been saved and then aren't or something, right? On, on the surface, it might appear that way. But the reality is that those who are born again and only those who are truly born again will make it to the end. But we will make it. God will, God will be sure of that. Um, so this is obviously a pretty big subject. Um, there's a book that's, out there for this. It's written by Sam Storms. It's called Kept for Jesus. Tremendous book. He deals with so many more passages than what we dealt with, uh, unpacks it, 
Um, it's well worth a read if you're interested in what the Bible teaches about these issues of assurance of salvation, eternal security. Sam Storms is a, a, is a pastor in Oklahoma City, just a tremendous uh, thinker, and but he wrote a pretty accessible book. So, um, yeah, so Kept for Jesus is a good one if you want to dig into that. But are there any questions on this one that, that we can try to clear up? And if not, we'll, we'll get to the glorification. All right. Glorification. Here we go. This is our last, last subject for tonight. So glorification, which is the word that's mentioned uh, at the end of Romans 8, uh, verse 30, right? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is the final step in the application of redemption. It's, the, it's where all of our Christian life is ultimately going. It comes to fruition when Christ returns and will raise the dead, uh, the dead bodies of believers who have died, uh, and reunites them with their souls, who will ultim- and he will ultimately give us bodies that are like Jesus' resurrected body. So uh, I will say part of this discussion falls under kind of the end times discussion, which will be in a couple weeks. We'll unpack some more of this, uh, at least on the resurrected body issue and what, what does that all mean? And we'll try to unpack a little bit more of that. But uh, I do want to take us to, to this because it is the fruition of sanctification is that we will be glorified. And, and the one passage, probably the most concise passage on the glorification of believers is found in 1 Corinthians 15. And really the whole chapter, um, but uh, we're going to just take some, some samples of it because the chapter is actually very long and um, really good, but very long. Um, so if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we, if you have a Bible and you want to do that, you can. And otherwise, you can just listen as I read. But um, yeah, this is where Paul really does start to unpack this idea of glorified bodies, what that means, how all this comes to fruition, um, and so here's, here's what he fundamentally says. Um, he says, we will be raised, and this is not a quote from the Bible, but my paraphrase is, we will be raised and glorified because Jesus was raised from the dead and entered into his glory. So the resurrection and ascension uh, is tied to this issue, but uh, let's just look at verse, um, well, how about we start at the beginning of chapter 15 just to set the tone and the stage and then we'll look at verse 12 to 22 to, uh, to flesh that out. But here's how the, uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 starts. This is a very classic passage that we will read often or preach from on Easter because it's one of those great Easter texts. Um, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Um, 
obviously those who were alive were alive when he wrote this, not anymore, right? So we get, you get that. Uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So, so there he's, he's basically setting up how the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to everything we're going to talk about. All right, now let's look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there apparently were people in Corinth who um, did not believe in a future bodily resurrection of believers. Um, They probably believed that when we die, our souls go to be in heaven and that's just where they stay and they never become embodied again. We're just sort of these floating souls or something up there. And, And that's part of what the Corinthians struggled a lot with and the Greek world in general struggled a lot with the idea of matter. Matter, like matter, you know, what we're made of, is, um, is bad in a lot of the, the old ancient Greek uh, view, right? That, that what is spiritual is good, what is made of physical things is bad. And that, that bled into the Corinthian church um, a lot, actually. And so a lot of the stuff he writes about on, on sexual ethics and that kind of stuff was basically he's dealing with these two groups of people in the church. One is that the body doesn't matter, so let's just have all the sex we want with anybody we want. And that's why they were getting into temple prostitution and all that stuff. And then on the other hand, there were people who were like, oh, no, no, like, you know, what's physical is bad, therefore uh, let's just never, never engage in this even with our own spouse. So you had, like, both of these were like, extremes and Paul says both of them are wrong um, because the biblical view of matter and spirituality is that the body is good God created it physical things are good God created them they should be enjoyed as they as, uh, in the appropriate context right but so evidently this whole idea starts to be fleshed out in the idea that we're not going to be raised from the dead and Paul's going but we're preaching a gospel that says Christ was raised from the dead. So if Christ was raised from the dead, how can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if Christ has not been raised, then everything is meaningless and what we're talking about. Uh, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. You understand his logic, right? If Christ wasn't raised, then what we're preaching is wrong, and it's misrepresenting God. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep is an analogy or a term that Paul uses to talk about death, physical death. So those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So basically, if Christ hasn't been raised, then all the people who believed in him and died are are gone. They're dead um, forever, right? And so that's what he's saying. And so if we have hope, uh, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But here it is. 
In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So by a man, meaning Adam, all of us died, right? And in Christ, uh, we have resurrection. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 22. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, so the, follow his logic. I know there's a lot there. It's a ton to, uh, to soak in. That's, chapter 15 could be, we could spend three hours on this passage just because there's so much here. He packs in tons. But his point is this. We will be raised. And the reason we know we will be raised and glorified is because Jesus was raised and was glorified. And so our hope is, is absolutely linked to Jesus. Okay, now, we will experience this ultimate resurrection at the second coming of Christ. And we're not going to get into the technicalities of the second coming today, because in two weeks, when we finish up this class, we'll deal with that specifically. But, but just look at where he goes at the, towards the end of this chapter, in fact, at the, in the last section of this chapter, he makes this connection clearly between our resurrection and the return of Christ. He says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So we won't all die. All not, he's, he's just saying human, human being wise, we're not all going to die, we, we'll, but we'll all be changed. And then he says, um, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality, and when the perishable puts on Im- the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we're seeing this this total fruition of our bodily resurrection will come when Jesus comes back. Okay, we will experience this. Um. Now, as we, let, but let's unpack what this tangibly means for us. Um, I will say from the get-go here that there's a lot we don't know about our resurrected bodies and what this means and how this looks. Um, verse 49, the verse just prior to the section we read here, um, he, he con- basically concludes his argument about, or his discussion about the, the resurrected body by saying that we will bear the image of the man of heaven. So what that means uh, is that our resurrected body will resemble or be like or image that of Jesus' resurrected body. Okay, so let's just quickly look at... um, So in verse 35 of chapter 15, Paul writes, Someone will ask... He knows we're going to ask it, and you guys are thinking it. How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You guys want to know that. Everybody wants to know that, right? So what's the answer? 
you foolish person. <laughs> like, once again, thanks, Paul. You're such, you're such a help here. Uh, he just, he's like, don't ask those questions. Come on. Um, but, but basically what he says is this, that what, is, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or some other grain. So he's basically using this analogy of seeds, and he's like, look, you put a seed in the ground, and when that seed dies, it actually brings about something else that doesn't look like that seed. Um, it, it looks different, right? And so the seed does not necessarily resemble the fruit that's produced from it. Um, so, so Paul basically doesn't give us a clear answer here, um, but he says we, we will have these new bodies and they will be imperishable. He makes that clear. They won't die again. Uh, they, they will actually be immortal bodies and they will resemble or bear the image of the man of heaven, of Jesus. So I think what we, we should do um, in just the next you know, few minutes is let's unpack what we know about Jesus' resurrected body. And these things may give us clues um, I can't say definitively uh, what we're gonna, what it's all gonna be like, because the Bible doesn't tell us. Gives us a mystery here. We're just sort of like hanging in there for the ride and excited to see what happens. And but, but there are some things that we can clearly learn about Jesus, his own resurrected body, from the Gospels and from uh, this passage as well. And and then we can make some, maybe uh, some connections to what our resurrected bodies may be like. Um, so first thing we know about Jesus' resurrected body was that he was recognizable to people. People recognized him as Jesus. So he evidently had some resemblance of his prior crucified self. He, now, there were, there were parts at, uh, of his life right after resurrecting that people didn't recognize him. But I think that was not because he looked different. It was because they were just unprepared and God kind of shielded them from recognizing him. There's a couple examples of that, but, but primarily we know he was recognizable to people. His disciples realized who he was when they saw him. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what we read at the front of this, that, that Christ uh, appeared after his resurrection. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and the twelve, and then 500 brothers at one time, and uh, James and, and others, right? And so he appears ultimately to Jesus, or to Paul, rather, Jesus appears to Paul. And so people saw him after his resurrection and were like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Like they recognized him. They knew it was Christ. And that's why it was such a big deal that he was raised from the dead. So they recognized him. Uh, so it's it's possible. I'm not making any ultimate statements here, but it seems likely that if our resurrected bodies are images of his, or they resemble his, or they, they're like his, then how we look will be recognizable to people in, in glory. I don't know what that means totally, but I think we will probably be recognizable as well. We also know that Jesus still bore the scars of his crucifixion after he was raised. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to bear all, all the scars of our bodies. Jesus is scars were kind of a, a big deal, you know, so they, I think he kept those uh, for a reason. Um, I don't know how much this is going to relate to us, but I think it's worth noting that his resurrected body still maintained the scars of his crucifixion. 
you actually have this taught in a couple of accounts of, of this, but John 20, 27 and 28, this is where Jesus uh, appears to the apostle Thomas. And uh, Thomas, of course, wasn't there for the first time that Jesus showed up to his disciples. And so they're telling him that this happened and he's like, uh-huh, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, which is why he gets to be doubting Thomas. But here's... Um, Here's what Jesus says to him in verse 27 and 28. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So Jesus says, hey, look, you can touch my hand and there's a scar from the the nails. Look at the side where they pierced my side with the spear. It's right there. So Jesus maintained these scars of his crucifixion, and he showed them to Thomas and, and to others. Uh, Luke 24 tells us that he was actually a living human. He had a physical body. He was not just a ghost or a spirit. And I know we did talk through this uh, a few weeks back when we dealt with the work of Christ and the resurrection, but I think it's worth noting here that this is the whole point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians is that we are going to be raised our bodies, the ones we have now, will be raised out of the grave if we die before Christ returns and be reunited to uh, our, our soul. Uh, and so we will actually have physical, real human bodies just as Jesus did. Uh, but Jesus makes this point very clear in Luke 24, 36 to 39. It's really an interesting passage here. Um, so it says... Uh, They were talking about these things, the disciples. As they were, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when, he, when they had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Um, so there we're seeing very clearly the Bible is teaching us that Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead, that it was, he was a truly human body. It wasn't a spirit. It wasn't an apparition. It wasn't some weird, like, you know, necromancer type of situation like i was just reading in first samuel where where king saul uh isn't hearing from the lord and so he goes to this witch somewhere and like tells her to call up samuel the prophet from the dead and samuel shows up as you know this kind of apparition like a a ghost and uh basically yells at Saul for disobeying the Lord. And it's like, it's so great. Cause it's like, ah, even his ghost is mad at Saul. This is awesome. But that's not how Jesus comes back. He's not just this apparition that's pulled up by some witch somewhere, right? Or necromancer. He was a real living human being who was raised. This next one makes me so, so happy. Uh, he ate food as a resurrected person. Twice the Bible tells us that Jesus ate food. Uh, after he was raised. And I just love it because it means we're going to eat when we're, when we're resurrected. This is good news. Luke 24, right where we left off, uh, verse 41 to 43. And while they still disbelieved for joy, so they were so 
just crazy happy that they're like, we can't believe it. It's unbelievable, right? So they're disbelieving for joy and they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So, of course, the reason he does this is, I think, to further prove the point that he's an actual real human person, right? Ghosts don't eat, uh, so because ghosts aren't real, but ghosts don't eat, right? So he's eating um, to prove that he's actually a person. And I think that that was largely what was happening there. But when you go to John, John's account of Jesus at the end in John 21, 9 to 14, this is one of my favorite stories. That all of his disciples, or some of them, Peter and the other fishermen disciples, are out fishing, not catching anything. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, put your, put your net on the other side. He did this at the beginning of their ministry too. It's kind of a callback to what he did at the start. He tells them to put the net on the other side. They catch all these fish. And then they recognize that it's Jesus because they're like, oh, we've, we've been here before. We've done this. Um, so it says when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with, G- with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, here's my life verse. Uh, oh, excuse me, no, not, not yet. Bring, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore. Um, uh, 153 fish. And although they were, there were so many, the net was not torn. Here it is, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. That's, uh, that's what he says. Come and have breakfast. That's my life verse right there. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now, this was the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, and after, and when they had finished breakfast, Jesus talks to Simon Peter. So, okay, we don't have to get into all that. But here we're seeing Jesus specifically going to the shore, Sea of Galilee, starting a, a grill, getting that fish you know, cooked up for his disciples and having breakfast with his disciples. Um, that's great news. I spent way too much time on this point, but I, I just think it just makes me so happy that he ate food. So there we go. Um, all right, one more, uh, I think, maybe a couple more. Um, Jesus seems to have a greater ability than regular human beings in his resurrection. So an example of this would be he appears in rooms that have locked doors, just kind of shows up. This is back in uh, John 20, verse 9, uh, excuse me, 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they're locked up in some room because they're afraid that the Jewish leaders are going to kill them like they killed Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed his hands in his side. Uh, so basically, Jesus just appears. Like he shows up. The doors are locked. He doesn't knock on the door. They don't unlock it for him. He doesn't break down the door. He's just in the room. So I don't know what this means for us, but um, I, I think it's interesting, at least, that Jesus doesn't seem to be conf- confined to the, the normal way of things in his post-resurrection body. He just can show up. So maybe we'll get the teleport around. I don't know. It'll be fun to, to find out. I don't, don't know, but Jesus can apparently just show up and there's a time where he's, uh, he's with somebody and then he's gone. He just disappeared, just vanished. So 
Uh, there's, there's a couple examples of that happening after he's raised as well. Okay, um, so there's still a lot of mystery surrounding these things. But what's abundantly clear is that our resurrected bodies will be glorious. Whatever else we, we don't know, we do know that we will be glorified, which implies glorious bodies, glorious resurrected bodies. Bodies that aren't affected by death anymore. Bodies that aren't going to be sick anymore. Uh, bodies that will just be able to go on forever and ever in eternity with Jesus. And it's going to be a glorious thing. Uh, if you want to dig into this subject a little more, I just read this book. This is a great gospel-centered resource on the human body. It's, um, it's just what God has to say about our bodies by Sam Alberry. Um, he deals with the resurrected body uh, in the last couple chapters, but he, this is really a theology of our physical selves. It's a really good read. It's, very, it's pretty short. It's pretty simple, um, but it's really insightful, and it was helpful to me. So, so that's a good resource if, if you want to think about. He does spend some good time towards the end of the book on, on the resurrection uh, and what that means for our physical bodies. So that's just another option for you. All right, any questions? Otherwise, we'll be wrapped up for the night. Probably a lot more uh, questions than I have answers for. But uh, yeah, if you guys want to chat, I'll, I'll hang around for a little while too. So next week, we'll be on week 11 out of 12. So we only have two weeks left in this. And we're going to do the doctrine of the church, kind of work, work our way through that uh, next week. And then... Uh, the week after that, we'll do the doctrine of the end or the end times, which I know you're all super excited about, and you should be. It's a really interesting subject. So, all right, well, that's where we're going, but I'll pray for us, and then, then we can head home. Uh, Jesus, thank you for the promise of resurrection because of your resurrection. Thank you for the promise that we are that we are adopted. We belong to you. We're in your family. We are being sanctified by you, by grace. We are growing and growing, and we pray you would help us to continue in that. We thank you that you keep us to the end, and I pray, God, that we would rest in that assurance but not allow that assurance to, to deceive us into thinking we can just do whatever. We, we need to love you and grow in you, and we, we pray, pray that you would help us do that, and we ask that uh, you would give us a great night on our way out. In Jesus' name, amen.